0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon. You're listening to Live and Learn with me, Dashran Johan. Experts are all in agreement: the death penalty is not a proven crime deterrent. So why then do many countries around the world, including Malaysia, opt to preserve the death penalty? What is it that drives people and governments to support the death penalty? Joining me on the show to help me unpack this is Dr. Mai Sato, Associate Professor at Monash Law School. She's also the Director of Ilios Justice, which conducts evidence-based research, teaching and advocacy on the death penalty in Asia. Also joining me on the show is Tam Javan, a researcher at the Centre. Welcome to the show, ladies.
1: Thanks, Dash, for having us.
2: Thank you for having us.
0: Dr. Mai, you've studied the death penalty in various countries, Japan, Malaysia, the Philippines, which has already abolished it, India, Kenya, and Zimbabwe. Is there a common thread when it comes to why many of these countries refuse to abolish the death penalty?
2: Yeah, there is a common thread, but maybe I'll just start by talking about the big differences between right. these countries, because in terms of their position on a death penalty, the Philippines doesn't have the death penalty, they abolished it back in 2006 right. for all crimes. And then you have Kenya Zimbabwe, which we call de facto abolitionists, meaning that they haven't executed anyone for more than 10 years. And then we come to Japan, India, and Malaysia, and those are the retentionist countries that keep the death penalty under law, and they execute. So there's big differences, but I also think there are commonalities. And I'm going to um, exclude the Philippines here because the Philippines doesn't have the death penalty. And I think what's common is that these countries, that the legislature is unwilling or reluctant to take leadership in abolishing the death penalty. And they often cite mainly two reasons, in my view, deterrence and assumed public support for the death penalty. And we can talk about deterrence later, but I think what we've seen is that social survey data shows that the public in these countries are actually ready to accept abolition if the government were to take leadership. So I'll say these countries, the death penalty exists, not because the public is clamoring for its retention, but because the governments are choosing not to abolish the death penalty.
0: Right. So, on that note, um, Javan, I want to bring you in just to hone in on Malaysia a little bit. What are the opinions of the Malaysian masses on the death penalty?
1: So, I think it depends on who asked this question and how this question is being asked, right? So, if you were to put this question out um, to the public with just a simple, do you think it's necessary? Um, Yes or no? And... Uh, more likely than not, you're going to get a yes mm-hmm. from the streets. Uh, but actually, the centre survey um, that we did in 20, 2019, actually, um, showed more nuanced opinions if you ask this question in another way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in fact, I think among the 60% of our respondents who thought that the death penalty is needed in Malaysia, only two-thirds of these 60% um Are actually firm about these views. Um, When I say firm, I mean they think they are extremely. uh, That they think that these views are extremely definite for them. So what I think this says is that there is a certain gap between this instinctive support for the death penalty in our society and a lack of familiarity with the deeper substance of what happens behind the curtains for death penalty
0: right i think that i think you bring up a good uh, a very interesting point right um this idea that um you know when, when you ask a person yes or no do you want the death penalty most people will be like oh my they, they'll they'll start to panic a little bit and say of, of course yes we need the death penalty then you ask no one's question and things change talk to me Doc, dr mayo about the way in which public opinion is usually shaped and surveyed when it comes to the death penalty because I think she brings up interesting points.
2: So when surveys are carried out um, often they just ask one or two questions on a death penalty and the main question on a death penalty is often a binary question, do you support or not support? And In addition to problems with survey questions, we also need to look at the sample size, the sampling. So there's all sorts of other methodological issues that we need to think about before saying, okay, these results is representative of the views of whatever country, Malaysian public. So putting that aside, if we just focus on the questions, I think it's probably important to look at the death penalty in context. And I want to use a sort of an example before we talk specifically about death penalty survey. So if you ask me if I like the colour color red, then my answer would be probably yes, I like the right. colour red. But if you ask me how much I like the colour red among all the range of other colours, you know, red will probably be low on the list. And I think we can draw parallels with death penalty surveys. And I'm going to quote some quote um, numbers from a survey that was carried out in Malaysia back in 2013. Mm-hmm. So when respondents were asked whether they support the death penalty or not. So the classic binary question, uh, 90% thought that the death penalty was an appropriate punishment. But when we asked the same respondents, so these so-called retentionists, we gave them a range of different uh, policies to tackle um, controlling drug trafficking. So policies included things like more education or more effective policing or more effective border controls. And then death penalty was one of the options. Then um, death penalty was one of the least popular options. So I think we concentrate so much on the death penalty and we forget that death penalty is one of the many policies to control crime. So that's my first point about we need to understand death penalty support or lack of support in context. Right. And one other thing I would do is if I'm doing a survey, I'll try to measure or predict possible adverse consequences that may follow from abolition if the, if a government is thinking of moving away from the death penalty. Right. And I think if surveys are used for this purpose, I think it serves as a very useful social barometer to gauge to what extent are the public ready to embrace abolition. And examples include, like for example if we have enough data to show that if the government were to abolish, people will stop reporting crimes to the police. Victims will no longer cooperate with the criminal justice system, uh, others will take justice into their own hands. If a social survey using sound methodology shows that these things are going to happen, I would argue that that government or that country is in dangerous grounds to move towards abolition. But so far, the surveys that's been carried out in Malaysia and elsewhere, that's not the case. I think surveys need to be used in that way.
0: So, you know, we talk about the nuance of of the death penalty when asking people the question, right? Um, when it comes to the death penalty, Javan, do some people uh, or do people in general prefer the death penalty for some crimes over other crimes? And I ask this because, let's say in Malaysia, the death penalty is not just for one particular type of crime. There are a whole host of crimes that, you know, can, um, you know, you, you you may be on the receiving end of the death penalty for, for various types of crimes. When it comes to public perception, do people say, okay, this crime... I support the death penalty but this crime maybe I I don't want it Uh, is there a difference?
1: So in our case um, Uh from our study I think there's more support for the death penalty for cases of murder compared to drugs definitely Um, for example I think back then we had uh, 85% support for the crime of intentional murder and I want to stress the word intentional but this 85% is only that because we post the offense to our respondents as it was. That's it. Intentional. medal. What do you think should be the maximum punishment? Right. Death. But what we found interesting is, is that when we sh- showed more mitigating factors and we asked our respondents, okay, look, since you said yes there, right, um, what do you think should be the maximum punishment for a domestic abuse victim um, who murdered her abuser so that eighty five percent dropped all the way down to twenty five right right um so I think that that shows a lot of um i, I would say impact mm-hmm. of of showing these factors to the public that it's always not just two words of a name of our friends it's so much more than that it's so much more of um, someone's circumstances um, someone's intention even it's a lot more than that and so I mentioned just now that there are more support Mm -hmm. uh, for death or murder than drugs right but even for drugs um, when we post drug drug trafficking as is there's over 60% support for the death penalty for kingpins, um, which is still significantly lower than the 85 right. but still over 60%, Absolutely. right? Um, but at the same time, this support also drops lower when it comes to more minor drug offenses. So um, we found that uh, just only about 15% supported it um, when if it um, when it is about someone who transported drugs unknowingly, right? So over sixty percent down all the way to fifteen. Yeah, that's so that, huge. So that that that's huge, right? Mm-hmm. So, I think to really summarize, um, yes, Malaysians do have more support for the death penalty for some crime over the others, but it, it depends on you know um, intention. It depends on circumstances, even type of drugs involved in our. The specific study about mm-hmm. drugs and the death penalty that was launched earlier this month. We found um I think actually as much as 56% of respondents who supported no punishment at all or non-custodial sentences. And when I say that, I mean like community service right. fines rehab for someone who uses less serious drugs. Yes. And 18% uh, supported the death penalty for knowingly transporting more serious drugs. Right. So when I put in less serious drugs, um, that support drops to 7%. So I-, I feel like our drug laws at the moment don't even reflect this enough.
0: It's clearly something very nuanced, right, this issue of, of the death penalty because it, it covers so many different um, aspects, so many different facets. Now, ladies, the, you know, a wise man once said, you know, that there are lies, lies and... Statistics. And when it comes to, you know, the death penalty, is the death penalty a viable crime deterrent?
2: I'll take the view that we can't have any research, either in Malaysia or in other countries, that actually shows with data that death penalty deters individual, let's use the example of drug trafficking, or that the death penalty is a more effective deterrent in drug trafficking compared to other crimes. And I think It's the absence of data that gives sort of, um, lack of credibility in using deterrence to justify the death penalty. And if I'm sort of playing devil's advocate, I could say that, okay, because we had capital punishment for drug trafficking, we seized this much drug or we have this many death row inmates without it. It could have been so much higher the the data that's often presented either for deterrence or against deterrence, I would say they're all correlations or associations at best. So crime uh, occurrence versus capital punishment, they may be related, but we can't show that A is causing B or B is causing A. It could be another variable causing it. So if we say that, you know, we abolish the death penalty and murder rate or drug trafficking crimes decreased or increased, we don't know if these are related it could be another variable so if we really want to show causation we need to create two identical cities or countries and then you have death penalty in one and another punishment in the other. Only then we can talk about causation. So right. they're really we cannot prove this with data. And without data, I don't think we should use it to justify the death penalty.
0: Absolutely. And I think you bring up a fantastic point. And I want to dig your brain a little bit on this, right? Because um, we talk about correlation and causation. Um one of the things that how would you respond to people who say that okay for example when we look at Singapore um we know that their crime rate is relatively low how would you respond to people who say you see it's because they have the death penalty <laughs> hence we have reached this point where you know it's a very safe city um it's a it's a city where relatively speaking um, um much lower rates of drug drug trafficking and, and 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 so on and so forth how would you respond to that.
2: I think I'll probably repeat what I've just said, that the fact that there's low crime rating, in Singapore could be because of various other factors. It could be its sort of economic development, it could be employment rate. I mean, many countries around the world, after the World War II, crime rate has been decreasing, becoming a safer country. Yet, prison population is going up. So, you know, what happens within the criminal justice system in terms of number of arrests, number of prosecutions, prison population it's more, it just captures the activities of the cr- criminal justice agencies, not much to do with what's happening, how much crime is occurring. And if we want to capture how much crime is happening, we need to do a, a victim victimisation survey to see how many people have been victimised for what crime.
0: Now, Jamal, I want to ask you, right, um, do governments, um, based on everything that we have discussed, right, um, especially the way a lot of surveys are conducted, the way um, headlines are, are leveraged upon by various parties. I'm wondering if governments um, don't abolish the death penalty because they want to use it as a tool to manufacture fear and moral outrage for their benefit, whatever that can be, um, let's say, political leverage. Or is the non-abolition an accurate reflection of what the masses want?
1: I want to say that it's Mm. 50-50. And I think in the case of Malaysia, we can't really say that it's for political leverage as much as enforcers actually believe that it works. Right. Well, we could say that this sentiment is definitely reflected in the way our prison population is going up and who's in our prison at the moment. Um, In fact... If you ask me, it's not so much about leverage because uh, if if I recall, there's a recent announcement about um, building more new prisons. Um, that's one. Right. Um. To the home, issue also announced the building of drug clusters, so called, um, outside of the parameters of prisons, whatever that means. Right? right. We we don't know how that looks like yet. So, what we can say that is that our enforcers seem like they mostly do believe in the deterrent effect of putting these people in custody. Right. And by extension, the more serious they think a crime is, the more serious the punishment they think it should be.
2: Yeah, I think some politicians will, are probably probably misunderstood, mm-hmm. stand about the impact or the effectiveness of uh, the death penalty as a crime control tool. But I think policymakers want to often want to appear tough on crime, because they think it's a vote winner. And then they probably believe that public like that sort of narrative too. So I think that's that dynamic of politicians thinking they should be appearing tough on crime, and then perhaps misunderstanding willfully or not willfully the will of the public. But I would add another dimension to This. I think there are countries in the world where they use the death penalty as a form of social control, and that people are executed not for the actual crime that they may or may not have committed, but it's a form of coercion and control and threat.
0: On the show with me today is Dr. Mai Sato, associate professor at Monash Law School, and Tam Jia researcher at the center. After a break, I asked them if the Malaysian public are receptive towards the abolition of the death penalty. Keep it here on Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Live and Learn. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Dr. Mai Sato, Associate Professor at Monash Law School and Tam Javan, Researcher at the Centre and we're discussing what drives people to support the death penalty. Dr. Mai, are there unique um, cultural or socio-political differences um, that make the abolition of the death penalty palatable in one country um, versus other countries where people are not okay? Is it merely messaging?
2: If you look at the example in the US, US states are now moving away from the death penalty. And I think two arguments were really um uh, important in moving the US away from the death penalty, and that's wrongful convictions, exonerations, and also people started to view the death penalty as a discriminatory, arbitrary system. And so the innocence framework is very persuasive in the US. But what we see in other countries is that the innocence narrative isn't as um, impactful or forceful in changing people's minds against the death penalty. And we see that in surveys in Japan, Zimbabwe. If I give an example from Japan, in Japan, uh, the so-called abolitionists, um, they, the most popular opinion among abolitionists is that they think that the death penalty is too easy. They think that life imprisonment parole is a harsher punishment. Right. But if you look at Zimbabwe, the abolitionists in Zimbabwe think that death penalty should be abolished because it's against human rights and against their morals. And so going back to Japan, retentionists want to uh, retain the death penalty because of uh, victims' families' feelings, retribution, and then in in Zimbabwe, it's other reasons. So I think there are um, uh, cultural, socio-political differences. And um, I think when we think about advocacy angles in Malaysia, I think it's important to look at what are the reasons the Malaysian public support or
1: not support the death penalty. There's such a large majority of Malaysians who believe in an eye for an eye. Mm. Um, And this is further propagated by cases of, um, you know, large-scale bullying caused um, deaths or, you know, some unintentional murders, um, etc., right? Um, And these were really, really pushed um, further in media reports and reactions that followed, So, in fact, back then, uh, we found that 71% of our respondents uh, would feel satisfied if some people who are guilty of certain crimes paid for it with their lives. Uh, That's a very strong um, Mm retribution-driven element right there, right? Um, In fact, this sense of satisfaction that I mentioned um, is more on the fact that They think it's a justified move for the sake of the victims of the crimes and the families of those victims. So it, it, it shows that our, that, well, retentionists' empathy for others' loss and suffering is a major underlying driver for their support for the death penalty. But as I mentioned earlier, um, these sense of, you know, satisfaction and support, um, gets moderated and get lower when they are presented with circumstances and the nature of such losses, right? I want to stress a little bit about the culture fact, cultural factor that you yep. asked about. So on top of believing that it's an eye for an eye, uh, we also try to look at uh, what kind of demographic factors could predict these retention views. Mm-hmm. right? Um, so in fact, we found a few things. Um. We can say this because it, it was a Peninsular representative survey. Right. Um, so for us, our Chinese respondents uh, from that sample are sixteen percent more likely to support the death penalty than Malay Bumiputra respondents. So the same observation can go for our Indian respondents as well, mm-hmm. who were eighteen percent more likely to support the death penalty than. Malay me putra respondent. So we wanna think about what what are the kind of like cultural drivers in these communities, right? Um I I can only speak for the Chinese community, I think. For us, there there's so much of belief for us that an eye for an eye, um, that's propagated by not just the media we consume. So I wanna raise a very good example of some of the shows that we watch growing up. Mm-hmm. Um they're very mainland China, Hong Kong driven. Um that show that justice is served when this judge in the show meets up the death penalty. Yes. And you get the sense of, hooray, justice yeah. is served. And I feel like that's that's a lot of motivation and inspiration of how some of us um, feel about the death penalty, especially when it comes to murder, as I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So there, there are these kind of you know elements, um, media, cultural, entertainment elements, that kind of drives that.
0: Um, even if we convince people that the death penalty doesn't prevent crime, we show them all the stats, many people will ask this. Well, if someone, let's say, sexually assaults and kills your daughter, isn't it fair for that person's life life to to end? How do y'all make sense of this? How do y'all answer this question?
2: I mean, what we might feel intuitively as justice and what, how we want to operationalize and treat offenders in the criminal justice system, I think there is a bit of a distinction. And so if we look at retributive justice, mm-hmm. I guess that's the idea that punishment should be proportionate to the crime committed. But if we look at, say, Malaysian criminal justice system, for majority of offenses, um, we we punish people with incarceration. So if someone robs your house, you're not going to rob the the, the <laughs> offender's house. If someone rapes uh-huh. you, you're not going to rape them back. But for some reason, when there's a, a death, we say, oh, then it should be um, meted with... Um, capital punishment. So I think there is a mismatch there when we use the word retributive justice. Um, And I think we can also approach this from when we look at theories of punishment, you know, why do we punish? So one is obviously retributive justice, one is deterrence, one could be incapacitation, it could be rehabilitation. And I think these theories of punishment could be divided broadly into two categories, backward-looking theories and then forward-looking theories. So backward-looking theories would be, retributive justice, we want to look back uh, what happened to the the crime and then try to repair or con- uh, um, compensate uh for the that harm that's caused so that's why proportionality of punishment is important and then forward looking justice would be for example rehabilitation we're not so concerned about the harm that was caused but we want we want to focus more on how this offender could rehabilitate and contribute back to the society so i think there's no right answer here and i think the malaysian Government and Malaysian public need to decide what kind of criminal justice system they want. Do they want um, a criminal justice system purely based on retribution? Then, of course, you can justify the death penalty on that basis. But if it's decided that, of course, we want rehabilitation, we want a more forward-looking system, then death penalty is clearly not an answer. I think there is a, a broader um, uh, idea about should the state kill right. and people who support the death penalty probably don't support civilians killing civilians or I don't think they support mob violence like vigilantism but for some reason they think that it's okay for the state to kill but I would argue that killing is killing and I'll be even concerned about state killing people because states already have a lot of power over us and I think if we say it's okay for the state to kill that's a lot of power and I could be easily abused so on that basis. Is I, I struggle with this sort of retributive justice argument to the death penalty.
0: Um, even without um, changing the philosophy um, of whether you want to, to shift towards a more progressive uh, um, sort of uh, um, justice system, I think even within the current justice system, the way things are run currently, people seem to be lacking um certain understanding on what exactly the demography or uh, the demographic breakdown of people on death row are. Because the assumption is, um, you know, like people say, like, what about the murderers? You know, how can you abolish the death penalty? The uh, the assumption is the death row is just filled with a bunch of serial killers, hardcore murderers. And so they ask, you know, why Why do we want to support them? Why do we care so much? And, and these kinds of things. But is that the reality?
1: Over 70% of our current death row population is made up of people who are convicted of drug offences and most of them are from poor and vulnerable populations who had a lack of access to justice Um, let's say having a lack of access to translation in court um, being burdened with having to represent yourself for example and even having to prove yourself uh, innocent, um, because that's, our prop- that's the primary power our drug laws, right? We, have, we are assumed guilty, and we have to prove otherwise, um, as opposed to other crimes in the country. I want to put this perception out there that the death penalty is not being applied to, excuse my language, as many murders as we might think there are in mm-hmm. Malaysia.
0: I don't like tying um, the economy to things like human, uh, human beings' life because to me from where I'm, from my vantage point, a right to life is a right to life. But there is an argument to be made um, and many have made this argument that you know, it is more cost effective uh, and it be pains me to even say these uh, sentences like this, but you know it, it's more cost effective to kill a criminal than to imprison them for life. And why, you know, should our tax money be used to feed and care for this this murderer, uh, you know, for the next 60 years of his life? How would you respond to this, Dr. Mai?
2: So comparing the cost of the death penalty and... I guess, um, imprisonment, Mm -hmm. I think the answer depends on what kind of death penalty system and what kind of prison system a country has. So it's not as simple as death penalty is cheaper than life imprisonment or other punishments. So if we care about procedural fairness and want to prevent wrongful convictions, you may want to put more safeguards for death penalty offences. And that would mean you mandate, you must have a legal representative, you might want to put several levels of appeal. That's going to take a long time for that death Death sentence to be finalized and then there's costs for execution. So I don't think it's as simple as that. But I think it's possible to have a very cheap death penalty system. You want to have a system where, you know, execution follows immediately after conviction, but then you need to worry about wrongful convictions. I have a, actually a, a quote from an American criminologist, Frank Zimmering, and he wrote, um, the death penalty can only be principled if it is not efficient and only efficient if it is morally and procedurally arbitrary. And I think we can replace efficient with cheap. And I think you have my answer.
0: Jawan, will the Malaysian public um, tolerate the abolition of the death penalty? And I'm asking this, right, um, because there is always the fear of backlash, of of public protests and and things like that. Uh, However, we've had the moratorium on the death penalty here in Malaysia since 2018, uh, which means nobody has been executed. And frankly, just from observation, it doesn't seem like the public really cares. It doesn't seem like the public is outraged. Like, why aren't you killing these people yet? Why aren't you hanging anybody? Why aren't you executing? So it seems to be like it's a law that, you know, it, it's something that can be abolished and there isn't going to be a lot of moral panic.
1: Um, I I, I want to... Point out that um, if we could observe how the public has been reacting to more major, well, majorly reported crimes in re- uh, in recent times, mm-hmm. the public only cares to a certain extent. Right. Um, if uh, let's say this person who was found to have bullied or you know rammed into or killed um, x amount of people. Then, I think this person should be dying. This person should be sent to the gallows, and that's a lot of that um like I mentioned an I and for an eye and everything right but I agree with you, Dash that no one has no one has really sat down and said, "Why isn't this person dead yet yeah um i i i I can pretty confidently say that we only care to a certain extent where we know they're in the gallows. And they're probably gonna die. Well, for retentionist people among us. But um, on the better side of the news, um, I, I want to say that we should not be driven by these um, views of, um, you know, backlash of uh, protest and everything. Um, I I, I want to say to policymakers and lawmakers um, out there that we we should be helping. The public, we uh, should be helping our constituents to understand extensively how the death penalty works and how it impacts the way we talk about criminal justice through more research back and extensive, um, you know, public messaging efforts. And we need to draw a line in allowing um, these broad, vague public polls to set the tone and potentially slow or even halt reform. And I I wanna raise this example from the way the mandatory death penalty abolition was announced recently. Um we we take that as a good a good news. Um right. it, it's a small step to reform, mm-hmm. um but a good news nonetheless. And we could judge from the aftermath of that announcement that there was not much of a Public protests, um, you know, not no white skill backlash. Like I'm gonna vote you out. I don't want you in right. government anymore. It's so uh, we could tell that it, it's it's okay if we do it s- progressively. I I want right. to stress the word progressively. If you come out tomorrow and say we are abolishing the death penalty completely, then yeah, um, in our climate, in our <laughs> political climate, you're probably not going to be sitting with that well in the, in the aftermath of that announcement, right Our survey shows, even though it's symbolic, but the death penalty is still considered necessary mm. in, even though symbolic, even though there's a lot more nuances, there's a lot more of um, circumstances that can be considered. but the fact that there are still um, sentiments of necessity in our in our uh, myths. It means that we need to measure uh, and really think about how we talk about impact, activism, and advocacy in the realm of abolishing the death penalty in Malaysia. So, and I I find what could work um, for us to move towards that is really talk about proportionate sentencing, right? Um, Since from the time of Prof Hood's survey in 2013 and our follow up surveys in 2019 and now, recently, 2022, it shows that if we talk about death penalty from the angle of proportionate sentencing and who it's really impacting, what it's really not helping at all, it works.
2: Yeah, I wanted to, your question was, will the Malaysian public tolerate yeah. abolition? And I think based on the 2022 centre survey, in terms of drug trafficking, I'll go even further to say the public isn't about tolerating. They actually want that abolished for, for right. drug
0: trafficking. Right. So, so do, you, do you also agree that in, let's say it, it is like, you know, like what she said, Um, you look at the climate of the country and make small changes where we can that will eventually lead us to the abolition of the death penalty.
2: I would say that's one way of approaching it, progressive restriction Mm -hmm. following total abolition. Alternatively, the legislature or the judiciary could take leadership and abolish the death penalty completely. And I don't know what the consequential sort of, you know, damage or no damage that will be in Malaysia. Mm -hmm. Um, Perhaps there'll be some victims' rights groups or other groups that will voice against that. Um, There'll be support as well. Would that completely erode legitimacy of the Malaysian criminal justice system? I don't think so.
0: Right, absolutely. Now... Since 1976, more than 75 nations have abolished the death penalty, um, Dr. Mai, for all crimes, and and I'm talking about the likes of Denmark, Norway, but it's not just these countries that you would assume, you know, like these, these so-called Scandinavian countries who are like progressing beyond anyone else's uh, imagination and how public perception would put it, right? It's not just these countries. Um, uh, and it's not just France, Australia, New Zealand, it's, it's Nicaragua, it's Hong Kong, it's Cambodia, it's so many countries um, in Asia, in ma- in many regions around the world. What has been the impact, um, either positive or negative, when it comes to the abolition of the death penalty in these countries? Has there been any impact at all?
2: Um, I can't speak for all countries, yes. but generally, I think the positive impact would be that you know, of abolition is that you no longer have a criminal justice system that kills individuals mm-hmm. for crimes committed. And I take the position that all systems make mistakes. So without the death penalty, there will still be wrongful convictions, but they won't be wrongful executions. One of the negative things perhaps would be that sometimes when governments or the judiciary um, decide to abolish the death penalty, not much thought goes on to what would happen post-abolition? What are the alternative punishments? And often, life imprisonment without parole is selected. And so I think we need to be a little bit careful about um, what the alternative punishments are because I take the position that life imprisonment parole is as just, just as bad as the death
0: penalty. All right, before we wrap this conversation up, would you all each have a final message for us?
1: Um, as mentioned earlier, I think there are small steps that are being taken and still can be taken, um, in our road to abolition. And most recently, I think we have a lot of, um, focus on how it interacts with our drug policy, right? So what I really want to say now is, uh, we, there is appetite to really change the way we approach drugs in general and also the death penalty. So in fact, um, 85% of our respondents in the recent survey, um, earlier this month, launched earlier this month, disagree with retaining the mandatory death penalty for drug offenses even. So, um, the, the, these findings, like these instances suggest to us that there is this, this appetite to reform aspects of drug policy, including amendments to the Dangerous Drugs Act. It's going to be slow, um, not as fast as advocates would want. But the fact that we can track over time um, that there is some shift in attitudes, uh, not just to offenders, not just to offenses, but also currently people who are dependent on these dangerous drugs, I want to say that that's a win. Um, And we just need to have enough check and balances to keep on the right track. Mike? Um,
2: I'm very excited that the Malaysian government announced its plans, I think last month, to consider abolishing the mandatory death penalty. And I think in the past attempt in 2018 was met with, you know, resistance and by selected critics and selected victims' families. And But I think what's different back then and now, and if we're just focusing on attitudes towards the death penalty, is that the Malaysian public supports the abolition of mandatory death penalty and that it supports for drug trafficking. An overwhelming majority prefers a prison sentence for that offence. So I'd argue that now, the question for the Malaysian government and the legislature is not whether the mandatory death penalty should be abolished or not, but what the discretionary death penalty system is going to look like in Malaysia.
0: On that note, Dr. Mai Jiavan, thank you so much for joining me today. That was Dr. Mai Sato, Associate Professor at Monash Law School, and Tam Javan, Researcher at the Centre. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can check out a podcast on the BFM app, bfm.mai, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashran Johan, and this has been Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes, BFM 89.9,
2: the business station.